Our reading this morning is a story from Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramettian, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to save Paul's life and keep them from carrying out their plan. 
he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. This way, everyone reached land safely. Well, last Sunday, totally without warning, we actually started a new series. I didn't let you know about it. We had our joint service with Trillium, and I didn't want to feel like they let them feel that they would be missing out in the next month. But we started a series that I'm calling The Health and Wealth Gospel. We're talking about this stream of Christianity with a message that promises health and wealth to anyone who has enough faith to believe. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, name it and claim it. You just need to believe that you have it, and it will be yours. Now, I'll be the last person to discourage anyone from having faith, but I wonder if sometimes our health and wealth depends more on the choices that we make than on how strongly we believe. In the month of June, we'll be exploring some of the key areas of our lives where a little effort and investment on our part can go a long way, where taking care of ourselves can actually be seen as an integral part of living a life of faith. This morning, we're going to talk about taking care of the body, we're going to talk about relationships next week, and then we'll talk about money, and then we'll talk about emotional health and well-being. But last week, we started by talking about living for others, and we did that to provide some contextual balance, because we didn't want this to just be an entire month focused on ourselves. So we thought, let's start off with a big, loud reminder that we're called to live for other people. But if you remember those flight attendant instructions from last week, the ones about putting the oxygen mask on yourself before that of your, com of your traveling companion, you'll remember that if we want to be effective in caring for others, we need to take care of ourselves first. And so that's the spirit of this series. Now, it's easy to think about our spiritual life as being completely separate from our physical life, but it's just not the case. This morning's reading features a rarely cited shipwreck story from the book of Acts as a reminder that when we live by faith, we live in a flesh-and-blood reality. We have to live in real life. And so the story begins, we boarded a ship and put out to sea. And so I have a little map here of the Mediterranean and the Asian Sea, and you can see this is kind of traces their journey. Uh, just to give a little bit of a sense, like when we read these stories from the Bible, it's easy for us to, to get lost in context, but this is, these are real places. These are real towns and cities that they left. This is a real body of water. In fact, a member of our community was just there recently. Here's a picture of Ron and Helen Croker standing on the beach overlooking the Aegean Sea. They traveled, imagine if you were to do that, that route, traveling from Israel to Italy by boat. Like none of us, that would not enter any of our minds. If we wanted to travel that far, we would like hop on a plane or do it, or we just wouldn't do it at all. But for these people, Paul and his 275 other people on the boat, they traveled by sea. Along with his many other strengths, apparently Paul knew or to her thing about ships. The captain was thinking that they were going to make it just a little bit further down that island to a more suitable town for them to spend the winter in, and Paul disagreed. He said, I don't think this is a good idea. I feel like the weather's about to turn here. But when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they'd obtained what they wanted. This is exactly the kind of wind we need. They were trying to get from Fair Havens to Phoenix. It's just a little bit of a wind to give us a push in that direction. Now, we may travel differently than they did in the middle of the first century, but we have the same tendency to jump to conclusions, don't we? Things are going well. That means they'll continue to go well. We've got a gentle south wind. But that gentle south wind changed. Before long, a wind of hurricane force swept down from the island. Now, the book of Acts is written by Luke, same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And 
a lot of the book is written kind of from a third person perspective, but there are certain parts of the story where he writes in the first person. And this ship st traveling story is one of them because Luke was on the boat. So when he says it was like hurricane force winds, it wasn't someone telling an exaggerated fish tale. He was on the boat. He knew exactly what it was like. And he tells us that they gave way to the wind. We can't fight this. It's too strong. Let's just let the wind take us where it will. And so the men got to work passing ropes under the ship to hold it together and began to make sacrifices in hopes of sparing their lives. They threw their cargo over, and then they threw the tackle over. I don't know if any of you have been in a dangerous situation on a boat before. I was trying to imagine, like, can I, can I identify with this at all? And the closest I came was on a pontoon boat on Six Mile Lake one time. Uh, Melissa's oldest sister uh, and her husband own a cottage up there, and so it's one of the highlights of the summer when we get to go up, and we get to go out on these boats on these beautiful lakes. And a few years ago now, our kids were younger, uh, it was the Canada Day weekend, and we were up there, and we were looking forward to watching fireworks over the lake. And so all the boats from all the different areas, they make their way into this big bay, and then everyone watches the fireworks from the water. So we were getting close to going there, and then, uh, so we were in this pontoon boat, a bunch of us, and then my other brother-in-law had his boat, which was not a pontoon, it was, it was an actual boat, and uh, it was like speeding by us. And so uh, my nieces, whose father was driving the boat, they were like, Dad, come on, you can move this thing faster. Stop putting around like this. And giving in to the pressure of wanting to be like a cool dad, he hits the throttle, and the front end of the pontoon goes underwater. And this massive wave just splashes up and starts flooding the water. And in that split second, I'm like, don't forget your children. Like, I'm thinking, I've got to grab one of them so we don't all drown here in this bay. Uh, so we went down, and then the water kind of splashed off, and it was okay, and we survived. So that was like my near-boating disaster. That's like as bad as it gets. But the other part was to drive home, because of course he was like super cautious after that. So at the, at the fireworks ended, and everyone else gets in their boat and goes home, but he's driving like as slow as you can physically drive. I think if I, had a, uh, if I would have had a paddle, I probably could have paddled as fast as he was going. So slow, so that all the other boats were gone pitch black. If you've ever been on a lake in the pitch black, that is a scary sight. But what we read in this story here is that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now that night on Six Mile Lake, I didn't give up all hope of being saved. I, I, I thought, you know, this is taking a long time and I'm getting a little chilly, but can you imagine for days without seeing the sun, for days being battered around by this storm? I know, I know, it's intense. What, Paul, what follows then is Paul's perfectly timed, I told you so, right? Because remember, he told them we shouldn't do this. And so he waits, and then everyone's like, the storm is bashing this boat. Everyone is like, they haven't eaten forever. And Paul's like, okay. So remember how I said we shouldn't leave? Okay, so now I'm just going to take over here. And he says, it's time to eat. For some time, the people had not even been eating. They probably thinking, oh gosh, this boat is going to wreck up against some shore. We're going to be stranded. And it's going to be one of those stories I've heard about. So they, they hadn't been eating for all this time. But he says, it's time to start eating. And after he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, then broke it and began to eat. This is remember, remembrance of this, this communion ceremony we just celebrated here. That in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this devastation, when everyone had given up all hope, Paul gives thanks and breaks the bread. Now remember, this is the same Paul who, who wrote the words we talked about a few weeks ago. Don't be anxious in anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So here's Paul on the deck of the boat, giving thanks to God, wind, waves, whatever else, and the men eat. 
Now, the story is included in our Bibles in part to just chronicle Paul's journey. This is part of the story. It's also there as a testament to God's faithfulness in the midst of a literal storm to remind us that God will be faithful in the midst of whatever other storms we face. There's a last just effort towards the end to reach the beach. It fails. The ship begins to break apart, and so the passengers begin to swim for shore, some of them floating in on pieces of the disintegrating ship. This was the final push for survival, a desperate swim for the coast of Malta. But the story has a happy ending. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Now, this morning, I want us to read this story with another purpose, too, which is a straightforward acknowledgement that sometimes we simply need to swim for our lives. So there's this uh, pyramid illustration known as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Over the next few weeks, we're actually going to take a look at, at how a number of these needs intersect with a life of faith. But this morning, we're going to start right at the bottom. The way that this hierarchy of needs works is that once you got the base level, level cared, cared for, then you can move on to the next level. And once you get that one pretty much taken care of, then you can begin to accomplish the next, from physiological needs to safety, love and belonging, esteem, and all the way up to self-actualization if we ever get there in life. But right at the bottom is this physiological needs, our need for things like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction. We have these needs as human beings, and we've got to take care of them. The story makes this clear. The 276 people on board, they hadn't eaten for 14 days, and Paul's big revelation after the I told you so is, you need it to survive. Okay, so we're, we're down to the bottom of the pyramid here. We might have been up a couple of levels in life, but you are now down at the bottom. Now what we're doing is surviving. We are doing the things that we need to do to stay alive. Pete Scazzaro writes that there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life to be, than to be immersed in unreality. In fact, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. And I think this is part of the danger of a health and wealth gospel, of a version of Christianity that says, don't worry about the circumstances you're in because all you need is faith. Well, no, we shouldn't worry, but we can actually do something about our situations as well as have faith. This passage from Acts, a story about a shipwreck, it may not sound very spiritual, but it's real life, and real life is our spiritual life. There's a great line from Paul while the ship is being battered about by the storm. After a messenger of God had appeared to him and given him this promise that everyone would survive, this is what he says to the people on the ship. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is powerful. That nevertheless is the gold mine of this story, and it's the reason that I chose this passage. Faith in God can be paired with a commitment to do, what we, do whatever we can with whatever we have. Paul's like, I have faith that God's going to come through. Nevertheless, we've got to do something here. We've got to do whatever we can to save our lives. And I believe that God will be with us and will save our lives. A couple of weeks ago, I borrowed someone's car. And as I was driving, I was just wondering to myself, you know, what, how many miles were on the car. So I clicked the little button to see the odometer, and it was a very exciting moment because the odometer read 299,999. And if you're anything like me, you get excited when you see that. It's like, wow. I don't know that I've ever seen an odometer hit 300,000 kilometers. I was like, this is an exciting moment. So I'm driving, and Jude is with me, and I'm like, okay, Jude, watch the road. And... Uh, no, not totally, but kind of. But I was doing the thing where you're like, 
you know, your eyes are just up and down and looking at the road, looking at, because I don't want to miss it. I don't want to see the number 300,000. I want to see it change from 299 to 300,000. I want to see that change, right? Something I've never experienced in my life before, right? So I'm paying close attention to the odometer and I'm doing this looking up and down thing and it's not changing. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I'm like, Jude, like, hasn't it been a kilometer? He's like, it's been like two or three kilometers. And then I started paying more attention to the road and less attention to the odometer. And I checked a couple minutes later, and it's still at 299.999. And I was like, oh my goodness, this person has discovered the fountain of youth of vehicles. This vehicle will never reach 300,000 kilometers. It's perfect. So just as a little bit of a side, if you're ever car shopping and you see that mileage, just turn away and run. So the fountain of youth for a vehicle, but not, there is no fountain of youth for us, for our lives. There's nothing that we're going to discover that all of a sudden the body just stops at 25. This is great. We just keep this 25-year-old body for the rest of our lives. It doesn't stop at 30. It doesn't stop at 40. I don't know beyond that, but uh, my own experience is that it just keeps on going. And so taking care of our bodies becomes a common theme in Paul's writings. If we're not going to discover some fountain of youth, then we've got to take care of these bodies we live in. There's some practical advice Paul gives in 1 Timothy 5.23. He's writing to his young protege, Timothy. He says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. But honestly, that's about the only piece of dietary or medical advice that he gives. He really doesn't have a whole lot of specifics to say beyond this uh, suggestion right here. Now, it's not my job to spell out for you exactly what it looks like to think, keep our bodies in mind. I'm not going to recommend a diet for you this morning. I'm not going to craft a workout plan for you. I'm not going to give medical advice. And I'm not going to tell you what to do with all of your sexual energy. But what I can be crystal clear on is the fact that our bodies matter and the way we live in them is without a doubt an important factor in our spiritual health and well-being. One of our key values at Elevation is spirit-centered living. And one of the little paragraphs from it reads like this. We don't want to divide life into the spiritual and the non-spiritual and instead prefer to acknowledge that all of life is permeated by the presence of God. This helps us to avoid separating matters of faith from ordinary life and frees us to live one life centered in God. That's what we're talking about here, that the way we live in our physical bodies and the physical world around us is, is our spiritual life. Back in our early years when we planted our student church, the embassy. We had a guest speaker who would come in every couple of years. We'd bring him in. And he had this great line um, that he would say. He said, like, if you want to talk about, like, what is Christianity? What is faith? It, it boils down to this little sentence. All of me with all of God in all of life. And ever since that day, I've wished that I were smart enough to come up with something so brilliantly short and sweet. All of me with all of God in all of life. That's Christianity. That's a life of faith. It's not just some of me with God. No, it's, it's not just all of me with a bit of God. No, it's all of me with all of God in all of life. And that's really Paul's clarion call too when it comes to the body. That our body belongs to God. So 1 Corinthians 6. This is a passage where Paul talks a lot about uh, the body. I'll read just a couple of verses, 18 and 19. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? Now, maybe you don't know that. Maybe I forget it myself from time to time, that our bodies are temples. A temple is a sacred space. 
A temple is a place set aside for God to meet with us. And it might be hard to accept this. Sometimes I found this great uh, image here. My body is a temple, ancient and crumbling, probably cursed or haunted. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was like, exactly right there. But you don't worship a temple. And this is part of the challenging thing of this, right? Is that I think when we think about your body as a temple, you probably have an image of like some bodybuilder or some incredibly athletic or fit person. But that's not what this is talking about. You don't worship a temple. A temple is a place where you worship God. So, there, so that's why we're to understand our bodies. This body that I have is the place that I get to worship God. Therefore, Paul writes, honor God with your body. But what does this mean? What does it look like? Again, I'm not going to get into the details. That's for you to work out on your own with a significant other or a roommate or friend or around discussion tables today. But what I do want to mention is a little bit more of what Paul, how he, Paul goes on to teach about this. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not myself be disqualified for the prize. So far from allowing his physical desires to run his life, Paul is committed to ensuring that his body is in a position to serve the greater purpose of his life. So listen, I'm going to beat this body down and make it my slave. Instead of me being a slave to my desires or whatever, whatever physical needs that I have, I'm going to make sure that I'm the one in control. There's this line from Dr. Larry Crabb in a book about marriage. He says, if we regard ourselves merely as bodies, and if we therefore want more than anything else to find some way to feel physically good, well, then sex is the ticket. But this is rooted in our denial of ourselves as real persons made for personal fellowship with God and others. And he's not and I'm not just talking about sex here either. The same kind of a principle can be applied across the board. Anything that provides immediate satisfaction without consideration for the bigger picture. We could be talking about just eating junk food. We could talk about being too lazy to work out and take care of our bodies. We could talk about other unhealthy habits that deteriorate the body that we've been given, that we worship God in and through. So I wondered why Paul's fellow passengers went without bread for 14 days. And as I suggested earlier, I think it probably has something to do with thinking about the long game. Like, this could go bad for us, and we're going to need something. So let's do without in the short run to set ourselves up for the long game. I think it's also important to acknowledge that annoying sound. I think it's also important to acknowledge that the ship's journey is an example of how our physical lives are both in and out of our hands. There were certain things that the people on that ship did that were within their control. They had to eat, make a decision to eat food. They had to do physical labor together. They had to actually swim to the shore. So there were things that were in their control if they wanted to save their lives. But there were other aspects that were out of their control. There was a storm. They ran into a sandbar. There were other self-interested people on the boat with them. And it's a reminder that we can want to take care of our bodies as much as we can, but there are things that happen, whether it's illness or injury or other things that, that get in the way of our body operating at its full capacity. And I think we have to acknowledge that that is part of the struggle of being human. Paul goes on in Romans 6 to say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 4. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And so we need to understand that knowing God and how we live in our bodies are connected. To the Corinthians, the Romans, and the Thessalonians, he's saying the very same thing. And I believe the Bible's saying the same thing to us today. Knowing God 
and living in our physical bodies are connected. So close with a little story here. I was read this in the news this week. Uh, I saw this image. Uh, this is an 800-year-old chess piece. It was discovered recently uh, and when a family member passed away and then the, 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 the children were going through the household belongings. And there was always this neat little knick-knack that, that dad had in his drawer, in his sock drawer that he kept. And uh, they always thought, well, this is a kind of fun little thing I found. Well, this is like a missing piece in a chess set. He bought it for $6 at a little antique store once, and it's expected to sell for over a million dollars at Sotheby's uh, when it's put public, up for public auction. Sometimes we might look at our bodies and say, eh, not worth a whole lot here. But God tells us that they are worth a lot. These are the temples that we are to worship him in and through. So to live by faith is to live faithfully in the bodies we've been given, with their beauty and their flaws, with their strength and their weakness. And I invite you to stand. I'm going to read one final verse and pray as we head off to a time of discussion. In another one of his New Testament letters, Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The physicality of Jesus, God becoming human flesh, an example of the, the close tie between the bodies we live in and the faith that we live out. So God, I ask that you would help us to see this, that you would help us to weather the storms of life in these bodies that we have. I pray for those of us who might not feel too positively about our bodies, that you would help us to see them as the place for us to worship you through. I ask that you would help each one of us to be able to make a greater tie between the physical life that we live and the life that we live by faith. Help us to understand that they are one and the same, that they go together. I ask that you would go with us today. Be with us as we gather around tables to discuss and as we live out our faith in the days to come. In Christ's name, amen.